James Pollock is the author of Sailing to Babylon, which was a finalist for the Griffin Poetry Prize and the Governor General's Literary Award in Poetry. Runner-up for the Posner. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Okay. Posner Poetry Book Award and winner of an Outstanding Achievement Award in Poetry from the Wisconsin Library Association. And You Are Here, which we are here to talk about. <laughs> uh, essays on the Art of Poetry in Canada, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award for a collection of essays. He is also editor of The Essential Daryl Hine, which made the Partisans list of the best books of 2015. His poems have been published in the Paris Review, Agni, Poetry Daily, The Fiddlehead, The National Post, and other journals in the U.S. and Canada. The poems have been broadcast on CBC Radio, listed in Best Canadian Poetry, and reprinted in anthologies in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. His critical essays and reviews have appeared in many leading literary journals. He earned a Ph.D. in Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Houston, and is now Professor of English and Creative Writing at Loras College in... Dubuque. Dubuque. You could have fooled me the way that was written, is written. Dubuque, Iowa, where he teaches poetry, writing, Shakespeare, Canadian literature, and modern and contemporary American poetry. He lives with his wife and son in Madison, Wisconsin, where we are today. Again, to talk about his book of essays published by Porcupine's Quill called You Are Here, Essays on the Art of Poetry in Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Nigel. My pleasure. Now, on the back cover of the book, someone has written, <laughs> Northrop Fry, the question uh, of identity for Canadian poets isn't who am I, but where is here? James says the answer has to do with our relationship to elsewhere. Canadians have refused to read our poetry in the larger international context of poetry as an art. So where is here? I mean, rather than answering it in general terms, I think in, in the book, the essays try to place particular poems in relationship to other poems by other poets from all over the world. So it's it, rather than approaching it from a sort of theoretical perspective and making broad general statements about Canadian poetry or Canadian literature, what I'm really trying to do is read individual poems and particular poets in a larger international poetic context. So in terms of the title of the book, it's really where are you, where are we, as we're reading any particular poem. Okay. This, the same point, I think, was made by Carmine Starnino in mm -hmm. his book, uh, A Lover's Quarrel, about 20 years ago. Sure. And quite famously, yeah. or as famous as a Canadian poetry critic can be. Sure. And, and uh, I mean, there's a whole tradition of this that uh, goes back at least to A.J.M. Smith back in the, well, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, what at the time was called a, you know, the cosmopolitan school or whatever you want to call it. In other words, just this idea that, um, you know, as uh, 
Milan Kundera says in a, a, a wonderful book called The Curtain, which is about the novel in the 20th century, particularly from an East European perspective. He, he makes the case that in small countries in particular, in all countries really, including big empires, this is a problem. But in small countries in particular, there's a an eternal danger of provincialism, which is the idea that you should or can only read your country's literature in the context of the nation. And the problem with that, as he says, is that it it cuts you off from the rest of the literary world, which is something that was a rude awakening to me when I went to graduate school in Houston. And, you know, I, I was encountering all of these extremely well-read poets and poetry students, and none of them read Canadian poetry at all. <laughs> they, they, the, you know, you would mention Canadian poetry and their eyes would sort of, you could tell they were like, thinking, oh, this is embarrassing. I've never read poetry. Well, and, and is that because it just it's just not good enough to make an impact on the world, or it wasn't? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I think it's partly a matter of one of the historical problems for Canadian poetry is that our anthologies have been, generally speaking, not great in terms of the choices they make and so there was this um, infamous moment in something like 1999 when a British critic named uh, was that Michael Schmidt um, no he's the guy who wrote the big the thick the, the lives of the poets yeah was he the guy who said uh, Canadian poetry is a short street. He did. Something like that. You, you quote him as saying Right. Yeah. And, uh, and when I read that, the first thing that occurred to me is, oh, he's been reading our anthologies. Right? Mm-hmm. He's been, his view of Canadian poetry is, uh, you know, based on, I don't know what, like the New Oxford Anthology of Canadian Verse and English or what, something like that. And um, so, you know, understandably somebody outside of Canada is not going to start by spending enormous amounts of time reading every Canadian poet they can find. They're going to start with an anthology. And if mm-hmm. if they are disappointed by what they're discovering in the anthology, they're going to stop. Yeah. So hence Short Street, right? So that's one of the problems. It's, it's kind of interesting how important uh, we don't think of anthology mm-hmm. necessarily being that important, but in terms right. of around the world, uh, they really they are aren't they? Sure. quite influential. Yeah, there was this moment. I think was it the eighties, early eighties, when um, Czesław Miłosz, the the Polish poet uh, who was living in California at the time, published an anthology called Post War Polish Poetry. And it's just this modest little drab-looking paperback thing, but it had an enormous influence in American poetry when it hit. Mm-hmm. And that's because Miłosz was a brilliant editor of that anthology. Of course, he had a lot of wonderful poets to choose from as well. So, mm-hmm. But the point is that, um, yeah, an anthology can have an enormous uh, effect on the way people in other countries read uh, a nation's literature. 
And I mean, those were all poems in translation, too. They were poems in English translation. So, you know, of course, something was lost in the translation, but even so, people were like, who are these Poles? <laughs> and uh, they discovered these, you know, Zbigniew of Herbert and Miłosz himself and um, Alexander Vought and uh, what's her name, the one who won the Nobel Prize? Yeah, uh, I can't uh, Oh, Wisława Szymborska and several others. And people said, oh, there's this great poetry being written in the late 20th century by these Polish poets. And so then suddenly everybody started translating them and, you know, reading them and everybody, you know. So every when I was in in uh, graduate school, granted, one of our, one of my professors was um, Adam Zagievsky, who was a Polish poet. He was a sort of slightly younger generation, but still... He wasn't the only one who knew all these poets. I mean, the other professors all knew them extremely well, and the, my fellow students all knew them. But, yeah, the, in terms of Canadian poetry, if you went into a Barnes & Noble back in the 90s, you'd see some Leonard Cohen, some Margaret Atwood, and some Michael Andachi, and that's it. And, you know, and, and those were not even really the, the poets who my fellow students or professors read. They didn't read them. What's the difference now, though? I mean, you go in now, you, maybe Ann Carson you'd uh -huh. see, uh, and, of course, um, oh, Rupi, right. Rupi, Rupi Kaur. Yeah. She just so, swamps everyone Sure. Else. So, yeah, and there's this, so there's this strange, um, totally understandable, totally natural blindness to Canadian poetry that, you know, the only way that's going to get fixed or improved is if you have somebody edit a truly brilliant anthology of the, the very best Canadian poetry and uh, publish it internationally. And that's that hasn't really happened. You but, did say, though, and, you're, and you did review uh, one mm -hmm. anthology that, that yes. came out as a result of what Schmidt said. Right? Yeah, Evan it, Jones and, and Todd Swift. Uh, modern Canadian poets, yeah, which is a pretty good anthology. It's way better than, than um, you know, many, many other anthologies. You know, it could be better, yeah. but it's you know, it's an enormous improvement. And one of the ways that it's such a big improvement is that it just it has the courage to exclude a lot of quite bad poets. Well, I think that's the point that you you make is mm -hmm. when you went to to university and you started studying these supposedly mm -hmm. great Canadian poets, mm -hmm. you were very disappointed. Yeah, um, I'm thinking George Bowering, mm -hmm. Fred Wall, mm -hmm. Margaret yeah. Atwood, even, and uh, and also the, well, the, the 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 concrete language. Is it concrete or the, language poets? Well, language. Yeah, B.P. Nickel and Steve McCaffrey and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Tish, all of that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's really one of the um, main reasons I wrote this book. In terms of, you know, thinking of it rhetorically, who is my imagined reader? And it was really uh, myself at 19 or 22 or someone like that who, you know, is 
in university and studying Homer and Shakespeare and Milton and Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson and all that Yeats. Yeah. And and then truly great. Right. Right. And then trying to trying to find what's good in Canadian literature. And of course, where do you start? You start with the anthologies, you start with, you know, somebody wins a prize, you pick up their book, you sort of browse around in the bookstore, you read the blurbs on the backs of books. And at the time, I didn't understand how, I didn't know anything about how the literary world works in terms of, you know, prizes and blurbs and uh <laughs> editing anthologies i was naive about all of that mm -hmm. and i just thought so the the impression you get if you're just reading around in some anthology is wow there's this stuff is pretty bad <laughs> but of course when you're 19 you, you don't really trust your yeah. your critical judgment and you, you think well if everybody else is saying it's wonderful then well plus if they're being taught Yes. In universities yes. by by professors sure. who are authoritative. That's right. And saying this is very important. This is, you know, had had a big influence and this was significant and and uh you start to think, well, okay, um I must be, there must be something wrong with the way I'm missing something yeah, here. I'm not working hard enough. Right. And I mean and and partly it's because you have that experience learning any poet so I, I have this vivid memory um i was at york university my teacher was a guy named uh, don summerhays he was a poetry writing professor but he also um taught a course in american poetry and we were reading robert frost in there and i remember saying to him you know he, he'd assigned a bunch of poems and we came in the next day and i, I before class, he came up to me and he said, so what do you, what do you think? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really get it. I don't really like it. It's too rhymey. It's too sing-songy or something. And he just sort of gave me this look of, of like, he fixed me with this sort of scowl or something, which is really unusual for him because he's a very genial guy. And he just said, try it again. So I thought, okay, it's me, yeah. right? Yeah. And then I went back and I did try it again. Now, of course, I'm a huge lover of, of Robert Frost. And I realized, okay, you have to have a certain humility and you have to understand that you need to learn these poets. It takes time to to learn these poets. And uh, So how did you learn that, uh, Frost? Like, how does it go from... I really don't like this too. Sure. This is the best thing I've ever read. Yeah. Great question. Well, it takes time and patience. You know, this is where critics can come in. Yeah. So, for instance, at some point in graduate school, uh, one of my professors recommended um, Randall Jarrell, yeah. uh, The Poet in the Age, or Poetry in the Age, which is a great book of, of contemporary review type, you know, uh, um, essays and. And reviews and uh, I read his essay on Frost and I think at that point I'd already started to get Frost you know I, I started to get him in that so how do you, how do you get him well it you rereading uh, reading criticism trying to write about the poems yourself 
listening to Frost. I mean, one thing that, that people often say is they hear a, a poet read or a recording of a poet reading their work and it a light goes off and they're like, oh, I get it. I get the tone now. But there wasn't one piece of advice that was given to you or one line that sort of was, was the start of uh-huh. the change? Oh, I don't know if I can remember that specifically, but, I mean, the advice was try it again. Yeah, okay. And you just keep trying it again, right? Yeah. But you so, need to be motivated. You need Well, and sure. A lot, a lot, you know, the average reader isn't yeah. motivated. I mean, it's funny that I'm using Frost as an example because he's such a popular poet, right? Mm-hmm. During his lifetime, you know, he sold enough books to live on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was, you know, he was a kind of popular commercial poet as well as critically acclaimed and so on, which is really unusual. But yeah, I mean, I think what it was for me, you have to, you, one of the things that I've discovered is you have to understand what your limitations are as a reader and at the time when I was 19 or 20 my limitation was that I'd never really been taught how to read meter and rhyme and so I read it with too much emphasis too much regularity Mm. too much emphasis on the rhyme and so it just felt too sing-songy or too you know I, I had no ear I had not developed an ear for what Frost calls the sound of sense, which is the the human voice embodied in the cadence, the grammar, the phrases, and the way that plays off against the meter in a kind of counterpoint. All I was hearing was the meter and the rhyme. So instead of whose woods these are, I think I know, which is a natural human way of saying it, I would be reading, whose woods these are, I think I know. Mm-hmm. His, voice, or his house is in the village, though, right? And that's horrible. So it's, it's the way you're taught to read. And one of the problems is with the way poetry is often taught, because the, many readers are introduced to free verse, and they read lots and lots of free verse, Um, I have nothing against free verse. Free verse can be wonderful. But if you're never taught how to read uh, the cadence of the grammar against the meter, then when you encounter metrical verse, you just think, oh, this sounds terribly old-fashioned, and it doesn't make any sense because all you're hearing is the meter and rhyme. And so you just say, okay, well, I don't like that kind of poetry, which is then what you're doing is you're eliminating (laughs) 90% of, of all poetry in English when you do that. I mean, that is just inexperience as a reader. So you have to be able to, you have to have enough humility to be able to recognize that and begin to overcome it. So in the case of Frost, you know, if there are any, if there's anybody out there who is not sure about a poet like Frost, just listen to him read his poems mm. and it will completely change the way you encounter a, a frost poem on the page because he's such a brilliant reader of his of his own work it's funny that puts me in mind of uh, of going to see a shakespeare plays it's so difficult to act it yeah. the right way mm-hmm. but when you come across an actor who who knows how to speak the the lines uh-huh. They're the same lines, but they make sense yeah. in a weird way. They yeah. won't make sense if someone doesn't do it the right way, exactly. and it becomes almost impenetrable. Yeah. But 
for whatever reason, some actors know how to read it correctly, yeah. and it, it makes it comprehensible. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I actually, I teach a course called um, Poetry and Performance. I'm about to start it, actually. It's a January term course. And, and the, the whole point of the course is we approach poetry with acting techniques so that it's not only an intellectual reading of the poem. It's physical, it's emotional, it's imaginative. You, you know, you have to, the, the students memorize the poem, so it becomes literally, physically part of them. Mm. And mm. they get up in front of the class and they recite the poems and we coach them. The whole class gives them feedback and we say, no, no. I mean, first we, I teach them some, some basic public speaking techniques like speak, slow down, speak louder, you know, look your audience in the eye, that kind of thing. Speak naturally. And we get to the point where, you know, at first the students are up there reading whose woods these are, I think I know, like that. And mm -hmm. we say, no, no, you have to read it like you are, are actually feeling this. And they, so then they try it and then we say, okay, that was pretty good, but now change, mm -hmm. make these changes. And by the, by the end of, of some of those classes, students are, you know, tearing up, mm. not just the ones reciting, but the kids in the audience too and that's so rewarding you know then they really get what this is about this mm -hmm. is about real human emotion it's about you know the beauty of the language it's it's a physical thing mm -hmm. it's not about okay we're gonna do a a you know detached intellectual reading and find the idea in the poem and all of that i i don't mean to denigrate intellectual that intellectual part but if that's all you're doing you're missing three quarters of what's going on in, in poetry and mm -hmm. unfortunately you know the way poetry tends to be taught in schools is there's this idea that okay this there's a secret code and your job as a reader is to decipher the the secret message and so once you've read the poem, I want you to be able to say what it's about, what it means. I mean, often what poems mean are pretty banal things like, I will love you forever, or my heart is broken, since you left me, I'm going to die. You know, those yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, you know, the content is not really the point. It's the, the, the rhetoric and the sound and the emotion of it, the imagery those are the things that matter and when all you're doing is decoding the poem to find the meaning you're you're basically you're killing the poem and you're just taking out some content that is not you know of the essence and the, and that therefore students kids in in their english classes end up hating this stuff yeah, they're like yeah. what's the point why not just say what you mean right they begin to associate it with you know, all of the deception in the world, adults with their double meanings mm -hmm. and their hidden agendas, and it's all... They're, they're made to think there's a right and a wrong, and there right. isn't. I can't get it. I don't get it. Right. I don't get the right the answer. Sure. The, the other thing, the other part of that, you know, thinking of what you just said, is that I'll often get students who are English majors who will come in with this sense that, well, anything you say about a, about a poem is right because it's just your opinion. There's no right answer, right? And I say, well, look, 
it's true that this is not mathematics where there's one correct answer and other incorrect answers. It's more like there's a, a limited number of plausible interpretations here, mm -hmm. not an infinite variety, a fairly limited number. And your job as a critic, one of your jobs as a critic, if you're interpreting something, is to have an insight about what you think is going on in the poem and then make an argument to support that that thesis, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and make so, it a damn persuasive argument, That's right, too. that's right. And, and if somebody else has a different uh, reading of the poem, it's up to them to produce an even stronger argument, right? Mm -hmm. And if you disagree with what some critic says about a poem, then it's up to you to make the case that your reading is better. But you're not going to have an infinite number of readings. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, in the case of somebody like Shakespeare, there are an awful lot, but that's a case of somebody who is so great that, you know, the, the interpretations multiply because time passes and society changes, and that's, you know, that's a special case. Let's get back to our book. Sure. The way you lay it out is interesting. You put a kind of a theory, your theory of poetry, the art mm -hmm. of poetry at the back end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it might be better positioned at the front so that we could <laughs> read what your theory is and then see how you applied it. But Yeah, it, it originally was at the front. How was my, it? Uh, my editor said, no, I, I, I can't. I can't sell this. You've got to put it at the back. So, <laughs> okay, okay. And then right before that, mm -hmm. you uh, you uh, have a something called on criticism a self interview, mm -hmm. which is sort of an uh, a, an interesting back and forth with yourself mm -hmm. about some of the more practical aspects of, uh, of criticism. Mm -hmm. So, there's a lot in your art of poetry essay that I'd like to get to. Sure. Starting with with the fact. Uh, that Canadian critics, you say, young Canadian critics, have failed to articulate fundamental ideas about poetry and poetic value, neglecting uh, the wider intellectual context of the art. So what's the wider intellectual con context? Well, this is what Kundera is talking about in his book, that, you know, the, the context of poetry, of a poem, is poetry. It's not Canadian poetry, but in terms of the wider intellectual context, I'm talking about the whole history of thinking about poetry. I'm thinking about, you know, philosophers and theorists and critics and poet critics and poets who've, you know, thought about these issues since the beginning of time. That's what I mean by the wider intellectual context of poetry. And, you know, one of the things I say in that essay near the beginning is that it used to be that poet critics were the ones who did that level of theoretical thinking. So Sidney and Shelley and Coleridge, Coleridge and uh, Dryden and Johnson and Eliot and Arnold and so on. But in the 20th century, once English studies becomes a respectable major in universities, I remember the first time I I really understood how young a, a discipline English studies was. I was completely blown away because you think, oh, it's been around forever. Mm. But in the turn of the 20th century, nobody studied English in university. Mm -hmm. If you studied literature, it was Greek and Latin and maybe literatures and modern languages. But English was considered 
you don't need university study for that. That's ridiculous. You just do that on your own. But anyway, so so but once you have the rise of of English studies or literary studies in the 20th century, you know, that's not classics. The th- the theoretical thinking about poetry gets taken over by theorists, French ones. Well, among not among only, others. Not only. I mean, Northrop Frye is one of the great theorists of yeah. of uh, of poetry. But the problem is that poets don't really think about that stuff anymore. My experience in graduate school, you know, one mistake I made when I first arrived is I didn't really plan what courses I was going to take very well. I'd, I'd really gotten into philosophy as an undergraduate. And one of my uh, teaching assistants there had said, you know, oh, you're really into Nietzsche? Well, you should read this guy uh, Derrida. He's sort of a Nietzschean, you know, acolyte. And I thought, okay. So then I saw this course in postmodern theory and Derrida was on the reading list. I thought, oh, this will be great. <laughs> it was one of the most excruciating experiences, intellectual experiences I've ever had was this course we read, you know, of grammatology and we read um, Foucault's Archaeology of Knowledge and we read Deleuze and Guattari and we, you know, all of that like really, really obscure, crabbed (laughs) post-structuralist theory. And the import of a lot of it was, you know, the, the author does not exist uh, writing is all undermined by itself. Like every, everything that you would not want to teach a 24-year-old, 23-year-old aspiring poet was in that class. Like it was just like designed to crush your spirit <laughs> as a writer. And plus the writing was so bad. I remember at one point just raising my hand in the discussion and saying to the professor... I don't mean this flippantly, but can you tell me why is this stuff so badly written? And everyone laughed, and the professor, you know, looked sour. But so, anyway. but how, why haven't young Canadian critics uh, articulated fundamental yeah. ideas about? It? Sure, I don't think it's a Canadian thing. It's just you know, it's not something that poets see themselves as doing anymore. It's not something that most poets in the past thought of doing. It was really the job of certain poet critics, right? So Eliot or Arnold or Coleridge or and so on. And so my point is there's nothing wrong with that. You can be a, a terrific critic without getting into theory. But my point is why hand over theory to philosophers and theorists? Mm-hmm. Why why can't as poet critics or as poets, why can't we try our hand at this too? And you don't have to leap right into Derrida and Foucault, who aren't really writing about poetry anyway, mm-hmm. you can write about, um, you know, the, the the main line of ideas about what poetry is and so on. One of the great mysteries to me uh, in terms of Canadian literary or intellectual culture is why Canadian writers are not reading Charles Taylor. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Uh, he just won an award at the um, Blue Met yeah. uh, last year. Sure. 
Well, Charles Taylor is one of the great living philosophers, and he's very interested in poetry. And he's he's apparently he's writing a book right now about poetry, which I am absolutely dying to read. Mm -hmm. But he's written a couple of terrific essays on Paul Salon. Heidegger influenced him too, right? uh, Yes, yeah. Yeah. He's very much influenced by continental European philosophy. But and he's Canadian. And he's Canadian, and he's he's an absolutely brilliant philosopher. So can you it, summarize what he says about poetry? Oh, boy. Well, he's written more about language than poetry. I mean, one of the things I do in this essay is I relate some of his ideas about language to a theory of poetry. Essentially, his uh, theory of language is an anti-enlightenment or counter-enlightenment theory. So uh, essentially, if, if you're talking about an enlightenment theory of language, a philosopher like John Locke, for instance, thinks of language as essentially designative. So yeah. a word designates a thing in the world. This has been massively influential. And if you ask most people about what language is, they'll tell you something essentially like that, that you use a word to represent something as though all language were a bunch of nouns that name things in the world. And that leaves it vulnerable to post-structuralists like Saussure, who come along and say, no, that it's arbitrary and blah, blah, yeah. blah, and you get post-structuralist theory out of that. But what you know, the counter-enlightenment thinkers like Hamann and Herder and Heidegger and, and ultimately Charles Taylor argue is, no, no, language is essentially, it's used to express thoughts and ideas one of the things it can do is designate things in the world but that's a very limited job that what we use it for most of the time is to express our thoughts and feelings and much more importantly to create new thoughts and feelings and modify our thoughts and feelings and to create new social relationships so you know for example if you say to somebody will you marry me? And they say, yes. You have just changed your social relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Or if a cop says, you're under arrest, you have just changed your social relationship, right? And so language is actually affecting the world and making changes in the world. This is a, a what he calls a sort of performative theory of language. Anyway, so there's much more to it, but uh, if, if anybody wants to read his full version of this uh He's got an amazing book called The Language Animal, mm-hmm. but uh, lots of smaller essays too. But anyway, so this naturally will, will produce a different theory of poetry if you go beyond a, a strictly representative or mimetic idea of what language is. So my point is Canadian poets should be reading Charles Taylor, and he's much clearer than reading Derrida or Foucault, uh, and by the way. You know, if, if you were a German poet... Or a French poet, it would be a matter of course that you would be reading all the great French philosophers and, uh, and or German philosophers. Like that's what you do if you're a poet. I think I mentioned Adam Zagievsky. He has this great um, essay. the The title of the essay is "Young Poets, Please Read Everything." And he says, you know, when he when he came to America and he met American graduate students, he said. American graduate students only read poetry and criticism of poetry, and that's it. 
And he was completely astonished by that. He said, in Europe, you if you're a poet, you read that stuff, but you also read fiction, you read philosophy, you read history, you read mm. <laughs> classics, you read everything. You read and science. He said, right. Mm. And he says, it's, it's so limiting yeah. if all you're doing is reading poetry. So yeah. you're, you're suggesting that Charles Taylor was an important influence for you and also Northrop Fry. And yes. I'll quote, quote here... Mm-hmm. Fry, of course, is is known for his theory of, uh, of myths. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, the ultimate source of general truth about human concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what myths are, and the answer to the question is: This what happens, as opposed to what? Um, as opposed to what happened. What happened? That's right. You yeah. make the difference. Mm-hmm. You differentiate those, sure. and what happened is connected to authenticity and a confession of individual poets. And yeah, so, so maybe you could t- cl- clarify that. Sure. So this originates in Aristotle's Poetics, where Aristotle makes a distinction between history and poetry, and he says history tells about what happened, and poetry tells about what happens. So there is a standard of truth for poetry for Aristotle, hence his mimetic theory, but you know, do, does the poetry correspond to truth, right? Right. And he says, yes, but you have to understand truth differently from the way a, a historian would. It's not what happened, it's what happens, the kind of thing that happens. Is this plausible? And is it a general truth? Sure, or is it, right, is, is it, and this is where myth comes in. Myths are not histories. They're not stories about what happened at one time. Yeah. They're stories about what happens all the time. And so that you can see it in, happening in your own life. That's right. And yeah. so, and we have this, uh, exactly, you can see it happening in your own life. And, and we have this, you know, unfortunate colloquial use of the word myth to mean something that is untrue. That's just a myth. But... <laughs> The reality is myths are very true because precisely because they're about the kind of thing that happens all the time, right? So one of the point I think I'm making about Fry at that point in the essay is that he's a mimetic theorist to the extent that he is concerned with how myths correspond to essential human concerns. He's also a pragmatic critic to some extent in the sense of um, caring about, you know, an ethical dimension Anyway, the point is that what I'm saying about Fry is you can't pigeonhole him in terms of one particular, he's a pragmatist or a mimeticist or whatever. People like to say, oh, he's a myth critic and dismiss him. That's out of date. There's this horrible thing in literary theory uh, and criticism where people, there's some fashion that comes along and then it gets superseded supposedly by some new fashion mm. and people talk about how oh that this is post whatever the fam- the favorite word of literary theorists is post yeah, yeah. it's it's post that theory and now oh, there's a new theory that's come along and there's no <laughs> there's no sense that there's anything valuable in that previous stuff it's it's a it's a kind of way of advancing your career and becoming a the new thing, the new fashionable thing. What you say is that uh, the, is the problem is that many poet critics uh, today have forgotten Aristotle's distinction between what happened once uh, and, yeah. and what happens always. Sure. 
then you make the point that the, the poets that are striving for this sort of authenticity, I suppose this confessional, mm-hmm. uh, personal what, catharsis or documentation of their experience, they abandoned uh, metric, metric verse. Okay, so there's a number of things to unpack here. So, so first of all, if you look at the, the development of poetry since, say, Wordsworth, you can see that there's this progressive movement towards autobiography in poetry. Uh, so with Shakespeare and Milton and Chaucer, it's not autobiographical at all, um, except in, you know, you could make an argument that maybe Shakespeare's sonnets are autobiographical in some sense, but the, the point of them is not autobiography. Um, it has much more to do with innovations in the history of the sonnet sequence and so on. Um, once you get to Wordsworth's prelude, suddenly there's this possibility of, you know, what Keats calls the egotistical sublime, right? The, the, the autobiographical poem. Um, but even in a case of, the case of Wordsworth, you're dealing with autobiography that's been turned into myth. So the prelude is a great myth, <laughs> as well as being autobiographical. Mm. Um, what happens over time is once you get to, you know, say the 1950s and the rise of Robert Lowell and Plath and, and Sexton and and so on, and, and what follows them, you know, the poets that come after, is you get this, you know, with some poets, this is an argument that, that um, Adam Kirsch makes in his book uh, called um, Something of the Modern, anyway, He's an American poet critic. And he says, you know, you get this kind of forgetting about the idea of the kind of thing that happens, and it becomes more and more about what happened, right? So it becomes more like history and less like myth. And as a result, you, you also get this idea that, well, what's important is to be true to the facts of one's experience, and this is what he calls uh, authenticity, the poetry of authenticity. And here's where the problem comes in. If what's important above all is the facts of your experience, then rhetoric and prosody and you know technique writ large become impediments to yeah. the recording of your authentic experience. <laughs> and And so you get this disdaining of rhetoric. You look at what people say about rhetoric in the 1960s and 70s, it's like rhetoric is the worst thing <laughs> in the world uh, rather than one of the the essences of the art of poetry. And, and sim- similarly, to get to your point about, about verse, meter and, and rhyme and you know anything other than free verse become suspicious as well that somehow they're inauthentic mm. right and so you get this sort of denigration of of art and technique in the name of being authentic in terms of the facts of your experience and and this is what kirsch identifies as a problem in in american poetry and and one of the points i make in my essay is that there's a similar thing that happens in canadian poetry at the same time in fact you say masterful technique enables a poet to achieve deeper contemplation of moral political experience in poems and produces profound aesthetic pleasure. So how does it do that? Technique? Yeah. Well, okay, so I think at that point I'm talking about 
Ivor Winters, I think, maybe. Could, could um, be, yeah. I mean, just to, to give listeners an idea of what I'm doing in this essay, I'm, I'm uh, taking up a number of uh, about four different major ideas about what poetry is and what it's good for, value, what's, what's valuable in poetry. And I'm taking them up one by one and sort of extracting what I find most persuasive from each one and trying to synthesize them into a grand unified theory right. <laughs> of poetry. Yeah. So, so I think at this point I'm looking at Ivor Winters, who was had this really radical idea that, that technique is itself a matter of morality or of ethics. So he's sort of the opposite extreme from this poetics of authenticity that we're yeah. talking about, in which you know it's immoral not uh, for a poet not, not to be, you know, a consummate craftsman or craftsperson, right, artist. And um, I just want to be clear: by no means do I believe or feel that free verse is any less valuable than metrical verse. But what I would say is that it, what happens in free verse, if you look at, at the beginning of free verse with a poet like Whitman, look at what Whitman is doing. He, he's writing a verse that sounds like the Old Testament prophets. He, he's, he's translating ancient Hebrew poetic technique into English. And in particular, he makes up for the, lo the loss of rhythm that you get when you no longer have meter by making use of tremendous amounts of anaphora and syntactical parallelism and repetition of various kinds. In other words, he, he's using technique. Well, he's using rhetoric. Techniques. He's using schemes. Rhetorical, he's using rhetorical schemes. He's cranking them up to 11 to provide a rhythm that would be lacking otherwise because he doesn't have meter, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so, as a result, his free verse tends to be, in most of his poetry, tends to be incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's, it, there's nothing wrong with free verse. The problem is, if your attitude is, well, rhetoric and meter are both impediments to telling it like it is. From the gut, let's say. Well, or, or just the, being true to the facts of what happened to you. Yeah. Then you're, you're going to end up with something that doesn't have any rhythm, for example. Mm. Right? You're, you won't have any schemes. And you won't have so any So what's wrong meter. with that? What's wrong with that well, if, it, if it's a powerful piece of writing? Well, what I'm saying is it, it, it uh, makes it weaker. If it works, if it's powerful... Yes, I'm all for it. But I'm trying to explain what happens with poets who who disdain meter, they disdain rhetoric. They say, okay, I'm just going to write without rhetoric, which is impossible to do. Mm. But they, they believe it's possible to do. I'm going to mm. write without rhetoric, without meter. I'm just going to get rid of all those impediments and just tell it like it is. The problem is you end up with stuff that's pretty slack, there's there's very little energy to it. You don't have rhythm. You don't have sound effects. You have, you know, the cliche about this is that it's chopped up prose, right? Well, the problem is good prose Using is full of, of these yeah. techniques, yeah. right? So it's yeah. not even good prose. It's yeah. just <laughs> it's just trying to do without technique, okay. right? It's it's the opposite of 
the way Shakespeare learned how to write poetry. We don't we don't know a lot about Shakespeare's life, but one of the things we do know is the nature of his education. And in Shakespeare's day, the way you learned how to write is you studied rhetoric and prosody and you know, in the case of drama, you studied stagecraft and you like you learned technique from a very early age in far more detail than we learn it. Even even learned scholars don't know as much rhetoric as a schoolboy in, in um, you know, Shakespeare's day. And you, you, what you say toward the end of this essay mm-hmm. is that the critic must carefully respond to the poet's art and demonstrate precisely what technical means the poet uses to open up contact with a transcendental source. Okay, so there, there I'm talking about... Um, that's a... It is a really long essay. So there, there I'm talking about... But what um, you're doing is, as you say, you're sort of melding a whole range of important uh, theories into something sure. that, what, that, that, that informs well, that, your the, critical yes, work? Yes, sure. That, well, in the first instance, that I find persuasive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I can agree with, right? I've just reread the that essay in preparation for this interview, and I thought, I still actually agree with all this no, That's stuff. good to know. Because so, that's about, that, what, six years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, maybe longer. Sure. And so, um, so, but at that, at that point in the argument, I'm talking about, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, one of the, the astonishing things I discovered when I was writing that thing is the history of the ancient history of meter. I mean, if you go back to ancient India, right, like really, really old, Mm. ancient Sanskrit documents. I read this amazing book by an Italian writer named Roberto Calasso called um, Literature and the Gods. And and he quotes this passage from an ancient uh, Sanskrit religious document about meter. And this stuff is really, this is like thousands of years old. And at that time, meter was considered, it, it's almost shamanic, right? That, that the speaker of that little passage puts on meter like an animal skin in order to approach the fire. So, you know, whereas in our day, you hear people talking about meter as this, that they love to use the word form and they love to, to you know, they talk about it as this kind of dry, you know, thing that you do to a, a, a poem that you pour it into this, like, you, limits, you're putting, limits right, it, you're right? putting a suit on it yeah. and you're making it mm-hmm. stiff. And like, that is the exact opposite of, of the origin of, of uh, meter, which is a shamanic thing. It, it, it allows you to approach the fire. Right, mm-hmm. and so one without of the, getting killed. Right, exactly. Mm. That this is a sublime experience. Right, mm-hmm. it's a it's a technology for encountering the gods. Well, right? It's funny you, that puts me in mind of Odysseus. They had to strap him to the mast, sure, but he wanted to listen to the sirens yeah. without being, you know, without being killed, killed yeah, by him. Exactly. So, so when you're that, I found really exciting. One of the things I, I say at that point in the, in the essay is that it fits with my own experience of writing metrical verse. I, I want to be clear to to listeners that I write in free verse, I write in meter. Uh, it's all good. 
Um, so I don't have a, 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 you know, an axe to grind about how meter is somehow better than free verse. However, my experience of writing verse in meter is not unlike what those ancient Indians are talking about in the sense that if I'm trying to write something and it doesn't fit with the meter or the rhyme scheme, I have to write something else. And when you're first learning how to write in meter, you know, you tend to write something worse than you were intending to say for the sake of the rhyme and the meter. But with experience, you get so that you immediately cancel out those options and you you write something, you try to write something better than what you originally thought of. Mm -hmm. And when you're writing, you know, at, at sort of a white heat and you're in in the zone and you're composing quickly and you've got your dictionaries and your thesauruses and you're, you know, you're sort of moving. The experience for me is, uh, uh, it's like there's a muse or a, a god or, a, you know, a better poet, let's say, whispering in my ear like no no try this try something better it's you know, makes it, here's a better option they're forcing you to be better that's right that's right and and so that by the time i'm finished i read it over and i go wow that's so surprising i didn't even intend to say that mm-hmm. but it's so much better than i had originally intended right right so when you think of of meter that way it's incredibly exciting and empowering so when it's like I go God, from, God talking through you. Sure. If but, that's how you want to put it. Sure. Or you're the unconscious or the duende or, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be a mystical experience. It can be, you know, however you want to think of it. But it's not conscious, right? Yeah. It's, not your, yeah. it's not your intellect writing it. So when I go from that experience and that way of thinking about it, and then I hear somebody talking about, you know, form as this Straight tired, you know... Uh, outdated kind of uh, they old-fashioned right old-fashioned they often associate it for some reason with conservative politics which i find completely bizarre yeah. you know so it's but it is important you know for me as a teacher to meet my students where they're coming from so it's important for me to really try to understand where where they're getting these ideas and to try to to meet them you know where they are and try to encourage them to see this stuff differently Okay, can you summarize your all-encompassing theory of poetry in a few short sentences? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, I think you talk about five poetic values. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, um, for me, uh, aesthetic value is primary. Uh, So, in other words, if... If I agree with the political ideas of the poem or the ethical, moral teachings of the poem or whatever, uh, that's not good enough, right? It's got to be, it's got to work as a work of art, right? So my first principle is that poetry is an art and it gives pleasure. But your art might not give me pleasure. It's not connected necessarily. Pleasure and art. I mean, they should go hand in hand, but they don't go hand in hand forever. Well, no, sure. Now, there you're talking about um, what we were talking about earlier in relationship to Robert Frost, right? That that um, I try to encourage my students to have a certain humility. If they're not getting it, if they're not getting pleasure out of Shakespeare or Frost or whoever, I 
try to encourage them to try again, right? Um, I give them some ways of, you know, reading the meter, for instance, or whatever. Yeah. And my students, so in my Shakespeare classes, my students will often say, you know, oh, when I read this before class, I didn't really get it. It was kind of boring. Uh, you know, it's really hard. I have to keep looking up the footnotes. But then when we did some of the performance stuff where mm. someone's really getting into it emotionally, oh, I get it. Yeah. Right? So my point is that if you're if somebody is not getting pleasure out of something that everyone else seems to or many people seem yeah, to be getting the, pleasure over the years, out of right, years. Yes, yeah. then then it could be a matter of well you just haven't figured out how to read that poet yet. So anyway, so, so pleasure, sure. Then um, moral sources, uh, human truth, performative sure. power, contact with something higher and deeper than the self. Sure. So these are all derived from historically important theories of poetry and what what's valuable in poetry. So the mimetic tradition thinks of poetry as corresponding to truth. You know, what the way the phrase I use there, human truth, owes something probably to Samuel Johnson's reading of Shakespeare, in which he says, you know, the greatness of Shakespeare is that he's true to human nature. The point is throughout history people have developed these theories of what poetry does. So, for instance, in, in Sydney, in the defense of poesy, he argues that poetry is a medicine of cherries, that you have this moral lesson you're trying to teach, and you sweeten it with cherry syrup or something to make the medicine go, to go down, so that it's, it's pleasurable for the end of moral teaching. With a poet like Horace, on the other hand, his poems are didactic. He's teaching yeah. things. Yeah. He's teaching moral lessons in the poems. But you don't really get the sense that that's the point. right? The real point seems to be pleasure. He's giving you a moral lesson for the purpose of giving you pleasure if you take pleasure in learning. So in other words, so for a younger reader who doesn't care about these moral questions so much, he has a certain kind of poem. But if he's writing for a... a you know, a middle-aged or an older reader who has thought, you know, a Stoic philosopher or something who's thought deeply about morality or political morality in the Roman Empire or something, they might be a little bored with something that does not engage moral questions. And so he wants to provide them with stimulation and pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's sort of two sides of a of a coin in terms of the hierarchy of pleasure or moral teachings, right? Yeah. But, but one of the things I do in there is I, is I bring in um, Charles Taylor on moral sources. So for him, it's not so much a matter of teaching a lesson, you know, how, what's the moral of the story, which we tend, you know, with modern readers, we tend to, uh, the hair goes up on the back of our necks and yeah. we resist that. For him, he talks about it in terms of resonating with a source of value, Right. So that if we read a work of literature or of poetry and we feel... So the example I give is is um, uh, Rilke's poem, Archaic Torso of Apollo, where the, the you in the poem encounters this statue. The statue seems to become inhabited by the god. And then you, are, you feel yourself seen by the god. And so you have this moral imperative you must change your Changes. life, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, 
there's no content of how you must change your life. Because the, that's not the point. It's not the moral lesson. Okay, you must, uh, I don't know. Stop lying. Stop lying or mm-hmm. something. It's the experience, the resonant experience of having been seen by the divine and being convinced that you must change your life. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an example of, I think, of what Taylor means by this, you know, poetry as a source of, mor- you know, as a moral source. You're saying that great poetry has to... I wouldn't, contain this. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it has to. Different kinds of poems do different things. King Lear or Macbeth resonate on a moral level in a way that, I don't know, A Midsummer Night's Dream might not. But A Midsummer Night's Dream is just as great a play. I, I'm not trying to argue that all great poems have to do all of these things. No. I'm just saying that all of these values are ways of making, if you take them into account and you satisfy these things that people look for in poetry, truth to human nature, resonance with moral sources, aesthetic pleasure, um, a connection with you know, something deeper or higher than the self, etc. These things tend to, if they're successful, tend to produce a feeling of excitement and euphoria and pleasure and joy in a reader which right? motivates you to read more sure yeah and so and so you know the point i'm making i think there is that i want canadian poets to be ambitious and shoot for shoot for the moon right yeah. to, to to really go for greatness at the end of peace you talk about the absence of a major poetic figure in Canada, and therefore the self of every Canadian has not been fully formed. Yeah. That's quite a dramatic statement. Well, this is this comes out of the the um, what Taylor calls performative poetics. That element that you know, just as language changes social relationships Mm -hmm. the cop says you're under arrest or your beloved says yes i'll marry you or whatever that changes reality everything changes social reality poetry can do something similar i argue against auden's line about poetry makes nothing happen i mean i realize auden is much more complicated than this this is a sort of simplified version of but but he's goading i think sure sure shakespeare uh has influenced many, many writers since Shakespeare, right? And those writers, in turn, have influenced, you know... No, absolutely. I agree yeah. the, the literary tradition, but sure. I'm talking about your average Joe on the street. First of all, the number of people sure. that really are, care about Shakespeare sure. or poetry. And that's a point I wanted to make yeah. at the beginning, uh-huh. was that, you know, in terms of the number of people in Canada mm-hmm. who, seri- who are serious mm-hmm. about reading poetry... Mm-hmm. Maybe 4,000 people. Yeah. 5,000. I think that number has been thrown around. Yeah. Whenever somebody raises this, I always think of the fact that, I mean, how many people read John Donne when he was, you know, handwriting his poems and passing them around to his uh, friends, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about a really small readership. How many people could read in Dante's day, yeah. right? So, yeah. so the numbers of people are not the point, sure. is what I would say. It's the impact it, it has on on the culture, and yeah, and and it, and also it over time, 
right? Yeah. It's not just what's happening now, it's what happens in the coming centuries and so on. I'm, what I'm doing there is I'm arguing against the idea that poetry is just this kind of meaningless pastime that, you know, it's marginal, it's not important to our culture or society, it's just this thing that a few crazy people do. I'm arguing against that and saying that if you just look at cultural history, all you have to do is read cultural history and understand that that's just not true. And it's, it's an illusion to believe that. It's just a, it's just an ignorance thing, but you can, you can, of course, really understand why people would think that, right? What poetry is not something that we read about on the internet all the time. It's mm -hmm. not part of every everyday experience, but you know, language is part of everybody's everyday experience. And Mallarmé, Stéphane Mallarmé said that the social role of the poet is, as he puts it, to purify the language of the tribe. Language has this principle of entropy. It's continually turning into cliché. It, it's always kind solidifying dying. and dying. dying. That's right. Habit. Just listen to journalism, mm -hmm. right? It's cliché after cliché after cliché. Yeah. And these are good journalists. And after a and, while, you just tune it yeah, out. Yeah, and you, you don't even notice it, and you yeah. don't realize what's happening to the language. Well, the job of poetry, in a social sense, mm -hmm. is to prevent that from happening or to revive. to revive it, to keep the language alive so that it doesn't turn into these cliches. And the, there's a political dimension to that too, that, um, you know, look at what happened to Spanish under Franco. Uh, the word father, papa, gets so associated with Franco. I mean, look, read Spanish poetry before Franco. You know, Lorca and Miguel Fernandez and, you know, all those great Spanish... Um, poets and then read Spanish poetry after Franco I mean yes it's being repressed and Lorca is being shot and all of that yeah. but it's also what's happening to the language the the political oppression being is censored. oppressing yes mm -hmm. it's oppressing the language it's turning the language into you know this uh, oppressive thing and it's the job of the this is precisely why in a totalitarian regime, you know, under Stalin, for example. Why was Stalin so obsessed with Mandelstam? He's just some guy writing poems. To us in North America, that seems bizarre. Why would, why would the, the leader be so obsessed with some poet? It's because the poet has, is resisting the corruption of the language. Right? Yeah. So, so Stalin was obsessed, you know, with the poets. That's why he sent Mandelstam to to the gulag. Right? Well, that's why Plato wanted to ban them. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. So it's not a new story, no, right? It's no. just that we tend to forget all that. We have cultural amnesia. And so to us, poets are these marginal figures who, you know, they only sell 200 copies of their book and they rely on subsidy. Like there's all this totally ignorant argument about the pointlessness of poetry that just flabbergasts me because it just is totally unaware of the whole history of poetry under under totalitarian regime. I mean, one of you, you, I think you before uh, the interview, you were talking about this Czech novelist Ivan Klima. And when I was in Prague, um, almost twenty years ago now, fifteen years ago, Klima was there, and you know a bunch of other Czech writers, and they were all talking about. Samizdat culture under the communists in Prague and the Prague Spring and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when and it was illegal to publish, sure, they just typed sure. it out 
yeah, and circulated that's amongst right. themselves. And, and, and since then, you know, the, the Iron Curtain had fallen and they had 10 or so years of capitalism and democracy and so on. And they were talking in sort of nostalgic terms about how poetry used to be so central to everybody's life. People would get up in the morning and, you know, spend all morning trying to find the latest Samus Dot magazine or whatever. And nowadays people just, they, they've said nowadays people just want to read like trashy, trashy novels yeah, and watch TV and, right. And, uh, you know, oh, so they were sort of longing for that golden age when poetry was <laughs> was more central to the culture. And, yeah. and I certainly would not want to live under totalitarian <laughs> system, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that when people really need poetry is when things get tough, right? Then they realize how important it is, you know, to survival. So in, uh, the other example I give my students is what the... Uh, Holocaust survivors say about what it was like in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Somebody would arrive, a new you know, boxcar load of, of people would arrive at the concentration camp, and all the people in the camp would run out to the, the new people, and they'd say, what, what poems do you know? What songs do you know? Have you memorized? And then they would tell them, and then they would memorize them. And then they would tell the other people in the, in the camp so that they could have a culture that they, this was what they were holding on to, so they wouldn't despair. So even even in the, the concentration camp, poetry becomes the, the well, really even, important thing. Not even thing. even, especially. Exactly, it's, yeah. Because it's about exactly. survival. Yeah, it's what keeps them sane, right? And people who've been in uh, solitary confinement under, you know, in prisons and so on, say the same thing. It's It's poetry, it's the verses, it's the... Mother Goose rhymes, it's the national anthems, the songs that they memorize, the poems they were forced to memorize in school. Those are the things that keep them from losing their minds. Well, from that, let's move to uh, the practical um, application of uh, criticism. And that's another uh, piece that you've written in You Are Here, Essays on the Art of Poetry in Canada, published by... Porcupine's Quill, in which you say that if there are no effective standards of quality or these standards are kept secret, then poets can't tell the difference between their good poems and their bad. That speaks to what? Honest critics. Sure. I wrote this, one of the essays in the book is this long uh, essay on Eric Ormsby's poetry. Once it was published, he read it and he wrote me this really kind letter. And one of the things I remember him saying is, I wish somebody had written this 20 years ago. <laughs> because, you know, in that essay, I'm full of praise for his poetry, but I also am tough on some of his poems. And, you know, his his response to that is, geez, I, I wish somebody had told me earlier so I could have revised them or cut them out. Yeah. And the opposite of that, Anne Carson in her um, Paris Review essay says, you know, at first, when she was first trying to get published, she couldn't get anything published. Then, you know, this... An incredible story of getting discovered by Guy Davenport and all that happened. And she became overnight this, had this meteoric rise of fame. 
And she says, she was complaining in the interview. She said, and now nobody will say anything bad about it. Yeah. It's all good. Mm-hmm. And she, it dro- drove her crazy, you know. And she says, people just don't want to think. They, they just want to be told this is good. Mm-hmm. So, that, okay, now we can enjoy it. And the problem is that that's not good for the poet. You know, those are poets who've published lots and lots of books and they're well known and so on. But it's it's true for beginning poets too. There's this, you know, there's this controversy that you know about involving, um, was it Michael Lista and Jan Zwicky and all of that stuff about, you know, native reviewing and all that. And one of the arguments that, that people made is, well, you know, you have some new poet who just published the first book. Nobody's ever heard of them before. Why should you lambaste them in your review and tell them, you know, this is not working, this is not working, and there's one good poem or something. Yeah, it's better and, to deflate overinflated uh, reputations right. than to, well, to, sure. to, to dump on a poor right. poet. Right, and, and, and then and what the advice is you should just ignore them. Well, I mean, a, a new poet who's published, a, first, first of all, the editor should probably never have published the thing in the first place, <laughs> right? The, <laughs> That's that's another question. But so you've, somebody's published a mostly bad book. Uh, and there might be a poem or two that's pretty good. I just had the experience. I, I, I reviewed some books of poetry for um, the Literary Review of Canada. And, you know, there was a book like this. And, um, you know, if you just ignore it, uh, the person's not going to, they're not getting any honest feedback Right. Their their parents tell them it's great. Mm -hmm. Their editor says, oh, this is good. And their friends say, oh, it's it's really good. So then they just keep writing at that level for their whole careers. And it's they never write anything any good. I mean, why is that the the thing that people want? Right. I mean, and that's what you what you say is the case for quite a few supposedly renowned great Canadian poets. Sure. I mean, yeah. your, that's been your experience. Is yeah. why, why have they been... He tells them, that's right. And, then, and once they get a certain amount of institutional power and so on, then no one is ever going to tell them mm. that something is not working. I mean, and that is but so listen, destructive to the, to the literary culture. It's well, just, just look, at, look at Michael Michael's experience. He's, he's left Michael poetry. Was the, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. He, was, he was an honest critic and look where that got him yeah well yeah i don't know look where he went he, yeah he'd left yeah he could have stayed obviously yeah. it's a great loss i you know when i i was listening the, i found out about it by listening to your interview with him and it's a gain for uh, journalism but you know i hope he comes back <laughs> i hope he comes back to to poetry and criticism at some point. There's way more people writing poetry than yeah. critiquing yeah. it, and that's a problem. It's the same in the United States. I mean, I, I met um, uh, Joshua Megan at a at a um, poetry conference several years ago, and we were talking about this, and he said, you know, who's, who's a... Uh, so I was talking about this in the Canadian context, mm-hmm. and he said, well, who's writing good poetry criticism in America? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, 
Yeah, I see your point. I mean, there are there are a few. I mentioned Adam Kirsch, and everybody mentions William, William Logan. Logan. Yeah, of course, yeah. But but you know, um, there are far far more books of poetry published every year than reviewers or critics of them. Well, the joke is there's more writers than readers. Right, and so and that's not healthy. And most books get ignored, mm-hmm. right? So if if you're a young poet who's published a, a first book, and most of it's not very good, and there are one or two promising poems or good poems in there. And a critic comes along and says, you know, most of this is not good. Here's why, right? That's important. Not just this is not good. Dismiss it. But you, you explain in detail what the problems are. That's right. You, but that's your here's why. Someone else might have a here's why for why sure. it's good. Yeah, and... And may the best argument win, right? The, it's up to the, the problem poet. Is, the problem is there aren't enough people to, to true for that yeah. that debate to yeah. take place. Some people get lucky and they have multiple reviewers. But anyway, so but but if a reviewer comes along and says, "Okay, here's what I find, you know, weak or problematic or whatever about some of these poems in very specific terms, being very precise and talking about alternate choices," the person might have made the poet might have made and then okay here are some poems or here's a poem that's working better then the person the the poet can read that and say oh okay do i agree with this or not if i agree with it then or i didn't think of that i never thought of right i may not have even heard of these rhetorical techniques or whatever in fact that's what you say here you say criticism good criticism can help poets See what the gods are doing in their work. Well, yeah, that's yeah. underlying, and also point out underlying relationships among poems that they may not sure. have known were there. Sure, and that that applies to even you know very strong poets. I mean, one of the things that's true of poets poetry as an art is that it's not entirely conscious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is true of many art forms that that you are aware of what you're doing technically. Or you ought to know what you're doing technically, yeah. ideally. But you might not know what's happening on an unconscious level in terms of displaced myth or imagery or symbolism or themes or whatever. And so, you know, I've had poets write to me uh, after they've read my essay on their work and they've said, gee, I didn't realize I was doing that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for pointing <laughs> that out. Yeah. It, it can, it, somebody just objectifies and clarifies for them what, what they've been doing all this time. And, and that kind of critical assessment of one's earlier work, whether it comes from a, a critic or yourself, is absolutely essential for the development of a poet. And one of the problems that we've had in, in Canada is you have pretty good poets, or even quite strong poets, who don't manage to get to the next level of major poet, or yeah. let alone great poet. And why is that? Well, it's partly, I would argue, because you don't have great critics who will you know, not just say, oh, this is great. Thank you. Next book, please. That's not helpful to a poet who's at that level of, you know, let's say somebody who's a technical master, who's been developing up to a certain point, who has some excellent poems and some poems that are not working, you know, doesn't, you know, they're, they're at the level where 
they need a reader who is extremely well-read and knowledgeable to respond to them. They don't need somebody saying, okay, there's some good poems in the book and, and some that are not so great. They need somebody to, to, to follow their whole development and say, okay, this is what I'm seeing. It, and the, the poet might not see exactly the same thing, but they'll be able to engage with that critical reading and say, oh, I now understand the direction that I've been moving in, and now right. I know what to do next. And to right? put it in Canadian terms, it's like it's like a hockey team that maybe is only playing yeah. at, uh, its yeah. opponents that are a certain level. Sure. They don't get the very best yes. in the world to play against. Yes. So they can't hone exactly, their skills exactly. and, and become the best. Yeah, that's a great, great metaphor. Yeah, and and so that's, you know, back to the the point about you know where is where is the Canadian Whitman or, or Dickinson? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. no. Granted, Emily Dickinson didn't have. <laughs> uh, no, she a, was a pretty great, isolated. But she did have some readers, and there's this you know more and more. No, critics. what about Whitman? He did, did he have great critics, and did he even listen well, to? Well. Emerson. Okay. Emerson Emerson was his uh, his great reader and he you know Emerson basically said yes you are you are on the right track mm-hmm. keep going but and Emily Dickinson we think of her as as being completely isolated but she had this friend who read everything she wrote and I bet there was a lot of really good criticism going on in there that we just don't know about because it was all spoken Criticism is is important to, to poets at the amateur level and yeah. at the, the level of, you know, near greatness too. It's it's as you say, it's sort of part of an ecosystem that yeah. you read it's it's so important. Sure. Symbiotic. Yeah. And it you know, it takes an enormous effort on the part of the critic to read a poet at that level. Right. Well, and plus it takes a, yeah a huge amount of time, yeah. and of course there aren't any resources. They're not paid to do this. Well, typically. You, you can make a you know a little few hundred dollars or exactly. something if you're lucky. Yeah. But you know when I when I finished that essay on Ormsby, I was completely exhausted. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a mammoth enterprise. Yeah. It's 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 a, it's terrific too. But you do I mean the thing one of the things you get out of it as a critic is you learn from that experience, right? So if you're a poet and a critic, you're doing this partly to further your own education, right? You're, you're, you're trying to follow the development of a poet and see, okay, th- these are the choices they made in their career and you can think about your own, what you're doing in your own work in relationship to that. You did. You followed his career, and you followed, you know, all his different collections. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I appreciated was, and you, this is the advice you give a critic: is to quote the poet, the poem, in full wherever you can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you did a lot of that in uh, in the essay on on Ormsby. You've written uh, articles on Daryl Hine, mm-hmm. who, interestingly, is a Canadian who moved to the states at a what, at a fairly early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis Lee, who you're somewhat critical of, and Carson, who who you're not. Jeffrey Donaldson, who you really admire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marlene Cookshaw, Karen Soley, and and Eric Ormsby. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just, after all of this conversation, uh, as opposed to going deep into uh, Ormsby's uh, oeuvre. 
perhaps what we could do is uh, is you could try and apply what we've been talking about mm -hmm. to uh, to his poetry in can you do that I mean, in a fairly sure. um, concise fashion yeah so one of the things I love about Ormsby's poetry is this is a guy who really knows what he's doing technically his poems sound fantastic it's mm -hmm. they're full of uh, assonance and consonance and alliteration and meter and and rhyme and you know syntax and you know he just the guy just really knows what he's doing technically speaking you know in terms of rhetoric and prosody it's it sounds really yeah great in the mouth yeah yeah it? yeah yeah and that in itself already puts him head and shoulders above many many <laughs> other poets mm -hmm. um, I also love his very self-aware engagement with the history of, of poetry. So his early books, his early poems, are largely uh, dingedichte, or thing poems, that uh, learn a lot from Rilke and Marianne Moore and D.H. Lawrence and maybe Francis Ponge and Paul Claudel about you know how you observe some object or animal or plant and describe them and transform them through metaphor and other tropes into something else um, through magic. Uh, it's a kind of verbal magic. Into what? Well, in in his case, over and over again, he transforms <laughs> the objects of his perception into decaying, erotic, divine things. <laughs> And why that is has a lot to do too. suffering. Yes, suffering, yeah. um, often bruised or tortured or you know, damaged um, things that are also erotic and also yeah. divine in some way. And and he looks at them with a kind of obsessiveness, a kind of fetishistic obsessiveness. Why does he do that? Well, as he says in his interview with uh, Carmen Starnino, uh, where is that interview? It's in a. Uh, a collection, yeah, there's a collection of, of interviews of older Canadian poets by younger Canadian poets. I think Tim Bowling edited it. Uh, I forget what it's called. Something like Where the Words Come From or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, so he says that a colleague of his said, why do you keep writing about fungus and mm -hmm. plants? Why don't you write about something important like your failed marriage? And he says, I was writing about my failed marriage, but I was writing about it by writing about these things, right? Mm -hmm. So Ormsby is very self-consciously trying to uh, do something different from conf autobiographical, confessional, you know, poetry of authenticity, whatever you want to call it. He's, because he's a bit later than Plath and, and, uh, and Lowell and so on, he's trying to do something new. And he does that by reaching back to something older, Rilke and Moore and, and Lawrence. And um, he, he realizes that he's, and that, and there's been a, there was a kind of disservice done to Ormsby's poetry and its reception because people sort of dismissed it as it's, it's just description. Uh, but it's not just description. It's, it's, he does what Rilke does and what Moore does. He transforms these objects into emblems of the self. Well, into emotion and feeling, yes, too, yeah, right? Yeah, And they're, they're incredibly good, powerful mm. poems that are, you know, what, you, you know that there's something deeply emotional going on in them. But you, just, but you don't, unless you've read 
quite a few of them. If you think, it's, if you yeah. if you only read a few of them, sure. then sure yeah. you can have that impression. Yeah. yeah, and 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 this is what I say that every poet you have to learn how to read every poet. So even though you might read a, a poem or two by a poet and think, oh, that's clear, I get it, I understand it, mm. it doesn't mean you really really get that poem. You, you yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you've really learned how to read that poet. Mm. You have to read everything they've written and all their prose and their, you know, read criticism of them and so on. And then and you get deeper and deeper. But so Ormsby is uh, engaged with literary tradition in a very creative way. He's a technical master, not mm. to say all the time, you know, sometimes he falters, but uh, most of his poetry is incredibly skilled. He is getting at truths of human nature. Uh, he is in touch with something deeper than himself. He calls it his demon, diamond, D-A-E-M-O-N, which is something I talk about in this essay. And he, he describes this with in his interview with Carmen, too. You know, he's, he's extraordinary in that he's... How many poets nowadays who are technical masters... Do you hear talk about hearing voices from their demon? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. we tend to think of, like, Allen Ginsberg, he's in touch with the spirits or something. And, and on the other hand, you have Auden or somebody who's all about technique, but we don't think of them combined in a single poet. Well, why is that? Milton, you know, heard the, the muse. And he was a he was a technical master. So there's no reason that you can't combine them in a single poem. So one of the things I find attractive and interesting about Ormsby is he's well aware that you know you can that technique and inspiration are are perfectly compatible. I also admire his development. I mean, he jokes in that interview with Carmen about how he starts with lichen and moss and works his way up to through baboons and hyenas to human beings. But, um, you know, it's true. There's a real development. You can see where he sort of, he goes on writing thing poems a bit too long, and they start to, you can tell he's sort of getting bored. And then he starts, he, he, but he resists that. He's not, he's like, I'm not going to keep doing this. I'm spinning my wheels. Yeah. I'm going to learn something new. And he tries in, I think it's Daybreak at the Straits, he tries a whole bunch of things. Some of which works great, some of which is a kind of a mess. And then his next book is Araby, which is a masterpiece. And where does that come? Like it just it's it's not about things. It's about these two characters. No, it's based and, on his Islamic scholarship, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I mean he wouldn't have been able to write that without yeah. that background. But right. you know, it's much more than that. It's not a dry researched thing by mm-hmm. any means. It's this dramatic sequence of poems often spoken by these these extraordinary characters and it's just a a a great book but it's completely different from what he started out doing even though there are still vestiges of what he's so for instance he'll have there's this poem uh vision junkyard vision or something like that in which he describes all of these like auto parts in the, not unlike the way he he does in the thing poems except this is in a much more complex dramatic monologue elegy you know character situation like it, there's a lot of things new things going on going on in there that were not there in the in the earlier poems so he's a poet who develops in very interesting ways 
And so, you know, there's a lot to like in that. And it's very rewarding for a critic to be able to follow what he's doing. And, and especially, as I say, if you're a poet yourself, to really get intimate with the artistic choices that somebody's made over the course of a decades-long career. Mm. A career a, that at least, uh, well, it didn't start till he was, what, 50? Well, that's, the, like other, that? that's yeah. the other thing. Yeah. I mean, when I, my first book of poems was not published until I was 43 or something. You know, when you're going through that apprenticeship, Mm. that's going on and on uh it's when you encounter a poet like ormsby who had a similarly well, in his case a really even longer truly epic apprenticeship it, it helps you see well it's just you have to be patient you have to be persistent mm. there's no one right moment to reach your maturity it's it depends on your individual you know identity or or, or temperament or path yeah. And it's not like he wasn't doing anything in those years. No, no, no. He, he was, was getting accomplished librarian. Sure, yeah. getting all these degrees and you know developing yeah. a career. The, uh, someday I want to read his biography and find out what happened to him in his twenties. There's this period where uh, he didn't get his his undergraduate degree till he was thirty. Well, that's where some of this pain man suffering. Oh yeah, came from. Well, he writes about the you know the. The place of, he's got this prose piece called "The Place of Shakespeare in a House of Pain," which is about his childhood in Florida, this sort of Southern Gothic, you know, childhood. And yeah, it's so, interesting. He, he's born in America. I mean, yeah. he's, he's Canadian, but uh, and and we are in America right now. Yeah. and you're Canadian. Yes. So how does that work? Well, how does it work? I mean, does this give you? Uh, first of all, are you committed to? being a, 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 a critic of Canadian poetry for the, the next number of years? Sure, that's, that seems to be where I'm most useful, I think. And you're here because of work? I'm here because I married an American. We met in graduate school. I'm here because we both have academic jobs here in the States. And mm. I've uh, applied for positions in Canada but there are not very many positions available, uh, and there are a lot of applicants. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I would love to write about poets other than Canadians, but and I do sometimes. But, um, uh, yeah, that seems where... You mean you're, to be you're where I'm forced useful. to write about Canadian poets? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, what I mean is that's where I seem to be drawn somehow in terms of usefulness, right? And, I mean... Les Murray, the the Australian poet, he does this. He writes about Australian poets because clearly he can see that Australian poetry needs good critics. You know that's that's where I see you know some use to to what I'm doing. But you know I've I've written about uh, I've got a, a piece about Rilke and and some other things too. So perhaps if you continue to work hard as a critic of Canadian poetry, then you'll be responsible for the first truly great <laughs> Well, that's not really up to the critic. It's up to the poet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. But I, I think what we need is not just one critic. We need lots of critics. And fortunately, we do have a whole bunch of, I want to say young critics, but I guess a lot of us are sort of getting in the middle age at this point. But, you know... Uh, Name some. Uh, well, um 
Carmen Starnino and uh, Jason Guriel and Michael Lista and Zach Wells and Robin Sarah and Anita Leahy and uh, Mary Dalton just published a book. You know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are writing. Uh, and, and I have to say, this is really, uh, the books exist because of Carmen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got this incredible uh, vision of a whole bunch of books of Canadian poetry criticism well, and, and, and he edits thanks to Tim Inkster too. yes Tim Inkster and and I think they're publishing a number of these at Biblio Oasis and true and yeah they Carmen's did Carmen's most they did recent Zach Wells, I think, sure yeah. and and Carmen's most recent book uh, came out with uh Lazy Bastardism is the oh, book. Yeah, it's Gaspar Press, Gaspar yeah. Press mm-hmm. right so I mean that's very heartening to see that stuff didn't really exist Back in the 80s and 90s, I remember I remember when I was in uh, at York, bewildered and confused and disheartened and, you know, <laughs> wondering what was going on in Canadian literature and not understanding. And I came across this little book by um, John Metcalf called... Uh, kicking the... It wasn't Kicking Against the Pricks, it was the, the one after that. Um, okay. And, you know, he had this wonderful essay on Alice Munro's Walker Brothers Cowboy, her story. And I thought, oh, this guy is such a good critic. And he's got the this attitude of, like, honesty, you know. And I was like, oh, this, yeah, this is what we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a, an undergraduate, and so I needed to get an education and, and all of that. But, see, what the way I got started writing criticism is... Um, I was reading a biography of Rilke, and I noticed that Rilke published, spent a lot of time publishing reviews, and I thought, I could do that. So I thought, okay, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a book to write a review of. So I just did a little research, and I found this anthology called The New Canon, edited by that, Carmen. In here. That's in yeah, here. so that's yeah. the first review I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wrote a review of it, and I, I thought it was great. It was exciting. I was like, who is this guy? Like, this guy, I, I get where he's coming from. Like, we, we I feel what he's doing. Mm. And so it was a, you know, pretty celebratory review, although I, you know, have some caveats and so on. But so the thing was published online, I think. And my wife and I had just gotten back from Ethiopia where we adopted our son and he was ill on the plane. And so we were in Chicago and he was at the children's hospital and I was staying in a Ronald McDonald house and I was late for my first class teaching and I couldn't get into my email. And finally I got into my email in the middle of the night and there was this email from Carmen saying, Hey, uh, I read your review of my anthology. I thought it was great. Uh, would you be interested in writing reviews for books in Canada? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. That'd be fantastic. And so then he assigned me um, the Marlene Cookshaw stuff. So that's why that, that's where that essay came from. And I think I would. I had already started reading that the Ann Carson book, um, which also appeared online too. There's a picture of me in Ethiopia standing next to the hut where our son was born, and I'm holding a copy of Ann Carson's book, uh, Decreation, which is really bizarre, because it's like, what is that doing there? And my wife was kidding me about it. Like, you can't even stop 
<laughs> you can't even stop with the poetry stuff while we're doing this. But anyway, so um, uh, that's how it sort of got started. And, and then Carmen got me in touch with some other editors. And so, you know, I started writing some other things. But uh, I tend to, the way I tend to like to work is um, I like to get all the books of a poet and read their entire career up to that point. And I, I realize I'm really lucky to have had some editors willing to publish those things, especially in Canadian Notes and Queries. They give you all kinds of space. They, do, yeah. they let you quote entire poems. Uh, and Is that Emily Donaldson? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, Zach Wells was the reviews editor oh, yeah, for, for a while, while at the yeah. time. Yeah. And uh, so I love that. And I've done some other things that are, you know, been assigned or have a limited space or whatever. And what are you working is, on now? I am writing a long poem. I noticed in your interviews that Michael Lista and Jason Guriel are also writing long poems. <laughs> I wonder funny. what that's yeah, about. I don't know what it is. It's the zeitgeist. It, yeah, but, yeah. But uh, one, I mean, one of the poems in my. Uh, book of poems is about 21 pages long mm -hmm. so it's not the first long poem i've written but yeah at this point it's about 40 pages long and it's it's set at the university of oxford and it involves architecture and mm -hmm. angels and demons and the muses and uh lots ruskin, of you got any ruskin in yeah there? there's ruskin it's lots lots of the writers and critics and poets who lived at or visited or studied at Oxford, which includes almost everybody, sure, I mean, even yeah. Keats. He wrote a lot of Endymion at Oxford. So at this point, I have the whole campus memorized, and uh, uh, there are some Canadians there too, Northrop Fry, Robertson Davies, and others. What about so, uh, criticism? Are you working on anything? Well, I, I not at the moment. I, um, I wrote a, a long essay about... Elise Partridge, when her her collected poems came out from the New York Review of Books Poets series. What and was that? That appeared in Canadian Notes and Queries a year or two ago. It was in their film issue. I think it was issue 99. And then I wrote a, a thing on a few books that were published by McClellan and Stewart for literary review of canada and i also I, I wrote a long thing on a ridiculously long essay on one book by jim johnstone the book is called the, the chemical life it's supposed to be forthcoming in um, hamilton arts and letters and uh yeah i've written a few other things about the hein book and so on that are online but um uh, in terms of critical enterprises i don't know i've been i've got some ideas i'm thinking of maybe proposing another Essential Poets volume with, because uh, I did the Daryl Hine one uh, with Porcupine's Quill. I've got a couple ideas for for those. I've, yeah, someday a, someday I would like to edit an anthology of Canadian poetry. But, I, was, I, I was expecting uh, yeah. that, actually, because, yeah, <laughs> I, no one's done it the right way I, yet. I've or, had a couple of people talk to me about teaming up to do that, and I'm just not sure... It's the time is right for okay. me. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is I promised myself I'm not going to take on anything big until I get this poem written. Sure. It's, uh, it's about 40 pages long, and it looks like it's going to be much longer than, than that, which is 
ridiculous. Who wants to read a poem that long? Yeah, I just but read the Odyssey. So. Yeah, there you go. So it's it's going to be what it's going to be, but that's what I'm immersed in now. Great. The other thing I'm doing is, um, I mentioned to you before our interview, I, I teach Canadian literature, one of the things I do at my college, and uh, I'm very excited because I'm taking this course, which has been a kind of cultural studies course on Canadian literature. We use literature to talk about Canadian identity and imperialism and the psychology of the colonial and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm turning that into a course which reads Canadian literature as literature, as works of art. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited <laughs> to do that. And I'm discovering there is so much good stuff out there. And But it's not necessarily the things you read in a typical Canadian literature course. Because Canadian literature has often been taught in terms of what's important, what's significant, what's influential, not necessarily what's really good writing so for instance you know one of my favorite books of canadian prose is a book by john glasgow called memoirs of montparnasse oh, yeah. okay. which, is, which is widely considered to be the greatest book about paris in the 20s and the writers there it's better than a movable feast it's better than morley callahan's book and so on it's been it was reissued by the new york review of books um series in a beautiful volume and it's so good yeah. and but who's going to put that on the canadian literature course it's not really about canada no in the first but two hey, pages by a canadian right yeah but but it's just a, a terrific book i mean that's canadian literature right totally. so i i want to i want a course where my students are saying this stuff is so good well it's so like I, you're putting in a way you're putting uh, your anthology together for that well course. right yeah yeah I'm also really excited about teaching Canadian poetry in that course in this poetry and performance kind of a way where I have students memorizing yeah, and reciting Canadian, you know, really good Canadian poems. Mm -hmm. So I think teaching that is going to help me imagine uh, an anthology of Canadian poetry. But, you know, uh, someday I would like to... I'd like to edit that volume. We'll see what happens. But the, I think it's important to do it right. And that takes an enormous amount of time. I was just reading uh, Northrop Fry's review of A.J.M. Smith's book of Canadian poetry that came out in like 1943. And Fry, an anthology, was yeah, it? Anthology, yeah. yeah, really you know, important anthology. And, and, and Fry says, you know, unlike previous anthologists of Canadian poetry who just basically recycle what previous anthologists yeah. have done yeah. to save time smith actually went out and read everything <laughs> well, he could back then he could well right yeah you can't that's do true. that anymore that's true that's one of the things that's prevented this yeah. from happening yeah. there's a there's actually there's a a pretty good anthology uh, Brian Treherne from McGill oh, yes. edited yeah, 20th century yeah 1920 to 1960 60. yeah and I've been exploring that anthology, and one of the things comments I make a couple times in my book is, uh, where are the good Canadian anthologies? I wish I'd known about his book. Mm. I don't know mm. why I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy, but uh, it's a pretty good anthology. I but, haven't read the whole thing, but... But it leaves open 1960 to the present. Well, right, and you know that's one of the problems is there's just so much 
But and this is why uh, Carmen's got the right idea. What you need is a bunch of good critics yeah. publishing books in which they respond to all this stuff, so that an anthologist can know where to <laughs> where yeah. to begin. Yeah. Of course, you have to make your own judgments, but you can't just wade into the eighty thousand volumes of right. of poetry. Just no, there's no time. So well, so, we'll yeah. look forward to that, even if it does take a long time. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Nigel. Thank you, James. Thanks for a great conversation. I've been speaking with James Pollock, who uh, is the editor of a forthcoming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is the author of You Are Here, Essays on the Art of Poetry in Canada, published by Porcupine's Quill, and a professor of... Creative Writing and English Literature. At? Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. Thanks very much again. Thank you, Nigel.